to, to be able to open up God's Word with you yet again this Lord's Day. And so let's do that by turning in our Bibles to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. And as you are finding Psalm 100, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Psalm 100. Let us give our attention to the Word of the Lord. Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Thanks be to God. Please, brothers and sisters, find your seat. Let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. So said Andrew Fletcher, a, I believe a Scottish politician, back in 1704. Think about that. What, what would possess such a comment? Why is it that someone would aspire to write the songs of a nation more than that nation's laws. And I want to suggest to you that the reason that someone would say that is for this simple reason. Songs, they have a peculiar power, don't they? Music, it captures our hearts, it molds our imaginations, it shapes our attitudes, it reorients our thinking, it calibrates our loves. Which means, please hear this, we can scarcely overestimate the importance of our playlists, of what our earbuds are shouting to us when we're at the gym. We can scarcely overestimate the importance of what Paul calls psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that is because all of this stuff, at its core, is transformative. And that is nowhere more true than, we get, than when we gather together as a church to sing God's praises. That's why we're going to begin a new sermon series this morning on the Psalms, entitled, Songs for Saints and Sinners. Now, take a deep breath. I'm not going to preach a sermon for each of the Psalms, but we are going to look at a handful of them. And we are going to look at a handful of them from various genres. In other words, the Psalms, those, those 150 inspired songs that are like right in the middle of your Bibles, they are not all the same. Some of them are songs of praise or thanksgiving. Others of them are songs of confession. You've also got what are called songs of ascent. You have imprecatory psalms, which sing and pray down God's curses upon people. And you've also got songs of lament. And so what we're going to do over the course of the next couple of months is, is we're going to explore some of those different types or kinds of psalms with the aim that we would see how this should direct us in our singing and in our affections and in our worship as a church. Now, to begin this morning, we're going to look at perhaps the most popular of all the types of psalms, and that is the psalms of praise. In fact, the, the Hebrew word that lies behind the word psalms, it means praise. And so that's going to be our focus this morning, psalms of praise. 
praise. And these psalms of praise, they are sort of categorized or, or marked out from others because uh, these are psalms that give honor to God, who he is. Th- these are psalms that extol his character, his works, his attributes, his glory, something like that. And in all of this, as the ancient people of God and as we sing these psalms of praise, what we do when we are confronted with the glory of God is it moves us into praise. You maybe heard the Puritans speaking of prayer. They say, pray until you pray. Well, we can say something similar about the psalms. Psalms of praise are, are sing until you sing. Right? Sing until the actual words grip your heart and cause you to sing, not just with your lips, but with your heart. Now, these psalms of praise, we could choose any number of them, but as you can tell already, I've chosen Psalm 100 as our passage this morning, and that is for good reason. This is a psalm that paints a glorious picture of what it looks like to praise God and why we ought to praise God. So what we're going to see this morning is both our response of praise and the reason for praise. Our response of praise and the reason for praise. Now, when I speak about our response of praise, what I'm really driving at is this. What should our services of worship look like? If we can just cut right to the chase... When we gather together on the Lord's Day in these very moments, what should it look like? What should characterize our gathering? What kind of flavor should it have? And Psalm 100 tells us, well, it should be a spicy flavor of praise. When we at Redeeming Grace gather for worship, when we lift up our voices in song, one of the chief things that we are to be doing is praising God. To which you say, I get that. that that's, that's fair enough. Or, by God's grace, amen. But what's involved in all of this? What does it, again, what does it look like? Think of it as an entree. If praising God is the entree, what's the recipe? What are the ingredients? And Psalm 100 gives us a couple. It's work. It's together. It's loud, it's happy, it's informative, and it's transformative. Those are all the ingredients, so let's unpack them and see how they make up this entree. First, our response of praise is work. We can say that. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that this requires work on our part. And I say that because this psalm, this little psalm of only a handful of verses, it has seven imperatives or seven commands, seven actions that you and I are called to perform. Let's look at these. To begin with, we are told, verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord. That is our job. We are to make, or some translations render, shout, or even lift up our voices. In verse 2, we are called to serve the Lord. We are to give our time, treasures, and talents to serving Christ. Notice, there's nothing passive here. Still in verse 2. Come. Come into His presence. In today's world, that means you have to set your alarm. You have to warm up your car. You have to get here on time. You have to come. The fourth command is found in verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. To truly worship is to truly know who God is. Something we'll come back to in a moment. And then in verse 4, it begins, Enter His gates. Middle of verse 4, give thanks to him. End of verse 4, bless his name. You see, this all requires participation. You must enter. You must give thanks. You must bless. So here's my question for you, Redeeming Grace. Do you see how this is your work? These verbs, make, serve, come, know, enter, give, bless. This is your work. 
church. This is what it looks like to praise the triune God. And that means that it will require of you something. It will require you to do work. Now, because I have used the word work in the context of worship, I need to offer two quick clarifying comments. And hopefully, in doing so, I will equally offend everyone. I am, after all, an equal opportunity offender. On the one hand, some Christians, when they think of worship, they think that it is their job to do all the work. They are the subject of all the verbs. They do, do, and do. As if in worship, this is like a sprint, and Christ is standing there with his arms folded at the finishing line, just waiting for us to finally get there. Then, on the other hand, some Christians, when they think of worship, they think that it is God who does all the work for them. They are the subject of no verbs. They sit, sit, and sit, as if worship is something Christ does for us. But church, we should rightly say a pox on both your houses. Worship is work, but it is a work that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and grounded in the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ crucified for you. So you and I, we work. Again, we make and serve and come and know and enter and give and bless. You, we, the church, we are the subject of all of those verbs. That's your job. But you don't muster up the strength to perform those verbs from within. It's not like you stand in front of the mirror and you just kind of pump yourself up and you just tell yourself to do this. Like, like, like this comes from just like brute strength or the exercise of your will alone. That's not it. Even though this is a work that requires you and your will, it's not a work you do solo. As those loved by the Father and purchased by the death of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we work as God works through us. This is what worship is. It is our work enabled by His work. So let's be clear, God doesn't just zap you and turn you into an avatar where he does everything. And neither does God just abandon you to yourself. It's not either or, it's both and. Consider a couple of passages with me that I think will sort of shed some light on this idea. Consider 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles at this point. Paul's saying, I bled more. I sweated more. I cried more. I worked harder than any of them. But then he immediately adds, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul says on the one hand, I busted my hump, but, but really it was the grace of God's spirit in me that enabled me to bust my hump. Or think of Colossians 1.29. After explaining to the church that Paul labored to present everyone mature in Christ, he quickly qualifies, very next verse, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Speaking of, of God. So Paul says, I toil, I struggle, but I do so with God's energy that he powerfully works within me. You hear this? Paul is toiling, Paul is struggling, but he's not alone. All of his toiling, and he is toiling, and all of his struggling, he really is struggling, it is energized by the very Spirit of God working in him and through him. Last example, probably the most common. In Philippians 2.12, Paul tells the church, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what are you to do, church? You are to work. And this work is to be accompanied by fear and trembling. But again, very next verse, without taking a breath, or we might say without him having to dip his pen back into the ink, he just keeps going. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Are you beginning to see something of this paradox? You work out your own salvation, but it is God who is working in you. He is working in you in such a way so that you are working and you are willing according to His good pleasure. So those three passages and others connect them all now back to Psalm 100 and our worship. Who is doing the work of worship? Is it just you? No. Well, does that mean it's just God? And the answer is still no. Truth is, God is working in and through you so that you will work. So we can say, yes, it is you who make and serve and come and know and enter and give and bless. You do all of that. But you do all of that because God's Spirit is working in you to do all of that. That's a long way to say that our first response of praise is work. Second, we do this work together. Return to verse 1 very quickly, and as you do, I I want you to see, or perhaps better said, I want you to hear, how verse 1 acts as something of a trumpet blast. A trumpet blast that summons all the world to worship God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Who? All the earth. So the picture in Psalm 100 is something of a, of a worldwide activity. All the nations of the earth, they are summoned to worship the true and living God. As Psalm 2 tells us, the nations are given to Christ as his heritage. They are his reward. They are his inheritance. And therefore, Psalm 2, the kings of the earth must kiss the Son lest he be angry and they perish. Church, if this is true of the whole earth, how much more true is it of you and I? Make no mistake about it. In verse 1, the people of God are summoned into God's presence. And then in verse 4, the people are called to enter his courts. That's Old Testament language for, for his dwelling place. Maybe to use the language of the New Covenant, the church is called to assemble as the church. To to render praise before Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if all that wasn't enough, all seven of these verbs, again, make, serve, come, know, enter, give, bless, they are all plural verbs. It's not you make, you serve, you come. It's y'all. Which means, please hear this, that Psalm 100, like every psalm, is a corporate psalm. Let me put it this way. This is a song not just for the Christian, but for the church. What this all puts front and center is this unmistakable yet often neglected reality. The Christian life is a life lived in community. And that is certainly true of worship. The local church is by definition an assembly. And if you do not assemble, then you are not an assembly. If I I can put it another way, And and doing so, I'm going to use the word church as both a verb and a noun, so you grammarians, give me a break. But but really, what the the Scripture is saying is, if you don't church, if you don't don't verb, if you don't church, you're not a church. To be a church means you have to, to church. I think sometimes one of the mistakes evangelicals make is this, and, and given our individualistic tendencies, this shouldn't shock us in the slightest. We tend to think that our quiet times are of more value than gathering together for worship. 
As a pastor, I will meet with people, and I will try to encourage people, and those of you, some of you might know this, if you miss church for a couple, two, three weeks in a row, uh, one of the pastors will call you, we've missed you, we've encouraged you, and not, a not so uncommon response is, oh, I, I, I know pastor, I've been out of church, but I've been reading my Bible in the morning. That's great. But that reveals something, doesn't it? It reveals this attitude where if we are forced to put a priority somewhere, it would be on our private worship, not our public worship. And this has only sort of been exacerbated in light of the age of study Bibles, podcasts, small groups, BSF, the parachurch conglomerate, and so-called online churches. Brothers and sisters, I I think it would be wise and prudent and scriptural for us as a people to push back against that and go, no, this is not the teaching of scripture. As Psalm 100 exhorts us, we are all together as a church to come into his presence. We are together to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Which is why Benjamin Keach, the great 17th century Reformed Baptist, said something that at his time was very boring and blah, but today is very controversial. And what he said was, the public worship of God ought to be preferred before private worship of God. Now, does this mean We shouldn't read our Bibles on our own. Does this mean that we shouldn't gather at the coffee shop with three or four of our friends and and pray and talk about things? Of course not. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying and what God's word is saying is that we are called by God to gather together as a church on the Lord's day to worship. And that our gathering. This gathering right now, it is the closest to heaven you and I will ever get this side of glory. Because God has promised through the very ordinary means of grace, through reading and praying and singing and preaching and seeing God's word, through these channels, what God promises to do is to back up a dump truck of his grace right on our heads. He promises to give us Christ and Christ and more of Christ. And he promises to do that not when you are on the golf course, Not when you are hiking, not when you are reading the scriptures in front of your fireplace on a Tuesday morning, but he promises to do that when God's people gather together in faith. Now, given the nature of our worship being together, let us mention still a third response that should mark our praise. It should be loud. It should be loud. Do you hear it in verse 1? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. End of verse 2. Come into his presence with singing. Middle of verse 4. Enter his courts with praise. You know what's absent in Psalm 100? Whispering. Church, when we sing together the great truths of God's word, you know what we ought to do? We ought to sing together. And our singing, it is supposed to be heard. It is supposed to be heard by the saints around us and the saints with us. Both Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 pick up on this idea. In both of those passage, passages, rather, the church is called to sing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And specifically in Ephesians 5, we are to address one another with our singing. Now, I realize that might sort of strike us as strange initially. And that's because many of us, and and I think the instinct is good, we tend to view worship, and by that we mean our singing, we tend to view our worship as something that is directed solely to God. When we sing, we are singing our praises to God, full stop. Well, brothers and sisters, that is only half true. When we sing together on Sunday morning, yes, we sing to God, and we sing to each other. 
which means we are supposed to sing loud enough so that those behind us and in front of us and to the left of us and the right of us can actually hear us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're obnoxious. It doesn't mean that we shout. It doesn't mean if you're in the front row, the back row should hear you. But it does mean that if you're in the front row, the row directly back from you should. It does mean that we are to sing God's praises to one another. And if you were to ask why, let me just give you one reason why. There is nothing more encouraging than hearing God's people sing God's praises. I have had opportunities in this congregation to hear Christians who are fighting for their lives in cancer sing loudly, it is well with my soul. Do you know what that does to me? It's massive. It's massive. This is how we fulfill the one another's. This is one of the ways. I think we're also prone to think, well, we, we kind of do church, and it's sort of this me and God thing, and then when the pastor finally gets done ranting and raving, we go to the fellowship hall, we have coffee and cookies, and then we can sort of encourage one another. And you might do that, and you ought to do that. But that doesn't start in that room over there. When you sing God's praises, and we, one another, hear you singing God's praises, it only energizes us and encourages us to sing God's praises. Some of you may know of Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a great 20th century Presbyterian minister. He made this observation. Where modernism and liberalism have taken hold, the hymns become a part of the service where the organ plays loudly, a paid choir sings without heart, and faint murmurs come from parts of the building where spiritual life struggles to express itself in spite of the circumstances. In other words, if I'm understanding Barnhouse correctly, when the reality of the gospel is not grasped by the church, the church is mute, regardless of how loud the instruments are. But, and here Barnhouse continues, where there is the warm knowledge of sins forgiven, wherever Christ is exalted in his grace and saving power, then and only then the singing takes on a note of triumph. I would just, at this point, interject. I wonder if you remember that story from Luke chapter 7 with Christ and this sinful woman who was forgiven. If you don't know the story that I'm talking about, I would encourage you to spend this Lord's Day afternoon reading it and meditating upon it. But let me just whet your appetite for a moment here. In the midst of this encounter that Christ has with this sinful woman, Christ says these words, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then Christ says, he who is forgiven little, loves little. And I I think that Christ's point there in that story is this. Those who are forgiven much, love much. And those who are forgiven, love little. And and I would just sort of interject, and I, I think the same thing applies. We could say this. Those who are forgiven much, sing much. And those who are forgiven little, sing little. Christian, when you and I are truly enabled to see the heinousness of our sin, when we are given eyes to see the holiness of God and the humility of Christ's death and the height of his love for us, well, Christian, at that point, you can't help but sing. And I assure you, you will not whisper, you will sing loudly. This leads to another related response. Our praise should be happy. Should be happy. Don't miss the language of the psalm. And maybe I say the mood. Verse 1 again, make a joyful noise. Verse 2 says we serve the Lord with gladness. End of verse 2, come into his presence with singing. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Psalm 100 is a happy affair. Why, you ask? Because we are entering not into his courts of damnation, but his courts of grace. Let me just share with you 
my very limited sort of anecdotal experience. Perhaps it will resonate with you. Too many Christians tend to view God as this angry, short-fused sort of judge that you might meet when you go to traffic court. You're just sort of a name on the docket. There's no relationship, and you know that you were speeding, and you know that when that gavel drops, you're no doubt going to be forced to cough up several hundred dollars. Church, is that the picture that is painted before us? Does Psalm 100 paint the picture of this reluctant judge just sort of punching a clock, can't wait to get home and move on to better things? Or if I can switch metaphors, too many people come to church as if they were coming to a funeral. No smiling, no laughter, no joy. Christian, this is not a funeral. Let us not forget, the God we serve, he has conquered death. Sure, he had a funeral, but he got up from the dead. And so we should be those who are happy and joyful glad-hearted and jubilant. And that is because when Christ got up from the dead, it means that sin has been defeated, forgiveness has been won, righteousness has been earned, and death has been killed. Imagine for just a brief moment, imagine a man with a winning lotto ticket. Let's say he's won $700 million dollars. You think that guy is going to wake up the next day with his head hung low, kicking rocks, complaining? We have something better. We have in our possession a winning lotto ticket worth infinitely more than a merely 700 million. We have Christ. We have Christ. Should we not be happy? Should we not be joyful? It doesn't mean that we don't have seasons of discouragement. It doesn't mean that Christians don't suffer from depression. It doesn't mean that we're a people that never sin and therefore never hang our head. But it does mean that the trajectory of our life should be one of glad-hearted joy. We are pilgrims marching toward the celestial city. We have heaven. And so many Christians act like we're shortchanged. Now, when I speak of happy, I'm not suggesting that we should approach God or worship with sort of a silly, shallow attitude. But I also think we ought to be clear that nowhere is being prickly a fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes Christians, and this is unfortunately particularly true of the Reformed, they tend to think that true spirituality and true piety, it's, it's always looking like your dog just died. <laughs> but believe it or not, you can be sober-minded, you can be serious, and you can still be joyful and glad-hearted. And I want to commend to you that that is what we see here in Psalm 100. Does Psalm 100 leave you with the impression that we are at a funeral? No. Psalm 100 puts before us a peculiar attitude, one that I would argue is impossible to have without Christ. You know what that attitude is? It is a holy happiness. A holy happiness. And I would like to add, again, in an effort to stoke the very fires of your heart, as Christian people, we should exude a holy happiness. As the 17th century Scottish minister David Dixon put it, according to the gospel, our persons and services are accepted. Our imperfections are pitied. Our sins pardoned. And our holy endeavors are graciously rewarded. Brother or sister, if that gospel reality doesn't cause your lips to sing, you might want to check your pulse. Another principle of praise, the fifth now, is that it is to be informed. Our praise of God is to be informed. What I mean by that 
is that this work of worship that God has called us to, it involves not just our hearts, but also our heads. Remember, Christ himself told us that our worship is to be in spirit and in truth. So you've heard me say quite a few times that that worship of God is not just like knowing your your arithmetic or something like that. But I don't want to leave you, leave you with the impression that our worship of God is, is like all emotions or something like that. It is content. There must be content to our worship. We do not worship a nameless, abstract figment of our own imagination. We worship the true and living God. And God wants us to know Him. So in that vein... According to Psalm 100, what God wants us to know about him are three realities. Creator, covenant, and care. Verse 3 tells us that God is our creator. Know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us. So often our world speaks of the self-made man. God says nonsense. We are all creatures, and God is our creator. In him we live and move and have our being. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything that you have, even the ability to roll your body out of bed in the morning and inhale and exhale, is owing to God, your creator, extending to you grace. Everything that you have, big, small, every single thing that you have has been given to you, entrusted to you by the hand of your creator. And as you and I gather together for worship, we ought to have this on the forefront of our minds. We are entering into the presence of him who made us. But of course, that's not all. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is not some tyrannical dictator. He's not like some young teenage kid with a magnifying glass on a hot August day trying to torture ants. As the middle of verse 3 puts it tenderly, we are His. We are His people. Our Creator, He has brought us to Himself. And, and He has brought us to Himself through covenant. What's a covenant, you ask? Well, for our purposes here, a covenant is a guaranteed commitment. It's a solemn promise or oath that God makes to us. And so what is the triune God's commitment to us? What is this solemn promise? Well, the overarching theme from beginning to end in the Bible, the the emphasis of God's covenant of grace is simply this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the contours of the covenant. God has given of himself to make us a part of himself. And he has done all of this for the glory of his name. Which means that at the heart of the covenant is no one else than Christ. Christ is how God brings us to himself. This is why just last month we celebrated Christmas. The the eternal son of God coming to us through the womb of a virgin. Why? So that Christ would be a human being like us. So that as the God-man, he could place one hand upon God and the other upon us and bring us together. We are told that Christ was born under the law, the law that you and I break. This holy law of God that is a reflection of his character. This law of God that reveals perfection. Christ was born under that law. And Christ has kept that law. Christ then goes willingly to the cross to die an awful sinner's death. Really, in a lot of ways, to experience hell on earth. Brothers and sisters, that is what we all deserve for our sin. 
And then, three days later, Christ is resurrected from the dead. A testimony to the fact that he is who he said he is and that he accomplished all that he said he accomplished. We don't have to question, is our sin truly removed? Christ got up from the dead to put his stamp of approval on his gospel message. So catch this. Christ fulfills the law on our behalf. He keeps the covenant we broke. He dies the death we deserve. And then he pours out the blessings of his covenant on us by grace alone through faith alone. Unless we miss the forest for the trees, this is how we become his people. We are brought into the family of God. We are forgiven all our sin. We are promised eternal life and resurrection glory all because of what Christ has done for us. And because We are his. Because we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, verse 3, he promises then to care for us. Isn't that what shepherds do? They love and protect and provide and care for their sheep. The shepherd is completely invested in his own sheep. Why? Because he loves them. I wonder, do you see the tender work of the good shepherd on your behalf? Does it warm your heart? Is Christ enough? The Father has given His own Son to make you His. The Son of God has shed His incarnate blood to redeem you and to secure for you a place at His Father's table. And the Holy Spirit has deigned to breathe new life into you, creating light and love and life where previously there was only darkness, doom, and death. So when I say that our worship is to be informed, I don't mean by this that this is merely sort of a cognitive mental exercise. What I mean is that experientially, in our souls, in our very bones, we are to know God as our creator. We are to know that God is not just a covenant maker, but our great covenant keeper. And we are to know that God cares for us. And when we know that, again, when we feel that, when our heart is warmed by those truths, we will sing. We will offer our praises. And that's because we have been redeemed. And we can't remain quiet about it, even if we tried. Church, let me submit to you now this last principle of praise. And that is to recognize that our worship is formative. It's formative. Maybe to say it another way, what our worship does is it actually shapes us. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Think with me of a man who is from San Diego. And let's say he was born there and he has spent his entire life there. He, he has never left San Diego. And then uh, one Christmas, he decides to come up here and celebrate Christmas with us Tricidians. And he's going to step off of that plane, and he's going to be met by some wonderfully uh, sobering weather. He's going to feel seven degrees. And what's he going to think? How's he going to feel? Well, he's going to be utterly freezing, isn't he? He's going to scratch his head and want to know what snow is. And the reason for this, that he's wearing 15 layers and that we're only wearing one, is because his body has been acclimated to having a 73-degree Christmas. Or maybe think of this. Let's say that you're someone who has lived in the Pacific Northwest your whole entire life. And then, for whatever reason, let's say work or some pretty lady lures you down south. And so you go live down there for five years and start a family. 
And then as a friend, you call this southerner now and you begin talking on the phone. What are you immediately going to be confronted with? Someone who apparently doesn't know how to talk right anymore, right? They're going to have this weird accent. They're going to say words that aren't words. Why? Well, my point is simply this. What we immerse ourselves in shapes us. We know this. I think sometimes we forget about it when it comes to our worship, though. What we immerse ourselves in, it forms us to the point that it comes to affect not just our speech, but even our body temperature. That's wild to think about. Well, the same is true of our gathering. What we sing shapes us. What we confess consecrates us. What we proclaim and pray purifies us. That's why this is all so very important. What we do week in and week out, it is forming us. Even our liturgy, the standing, repeating, praying, singing, confessing, receiving the word, eating the bread, drinking the wine, hearing God's promise of forgiveness, hearing God's benediction over us, All of this is doing a work in us. It's making us into God's people. When we open our mouths and when we lift up our voices, we are preaching truth. We are preaching truth both to ourselves and to those who are around us. And you'd better believe that truth transforms. It transforms our hearts. Now, beloved, we have surveyed our response of praise, but we're not done. Just give me a couple of more minutes because I want us to make sure that we see the reason for all of this. Why should we praise God? And verse 5 is really the answer to that question. Verse 5 is the foundation that the cathedral of verses 1 through 4 is built upon. So, what provokes our praise? What compels us to lift our voices? Verse 5 answers, For the Lord is good. God is good. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is good. And I don't mean good like the way you think chocolate is good. Right? The psalmist is clarifying for us. He is good, verse 5, because his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. So so the beautiful portrait of the goodness of God, the goodness of your God, Christian, it is painted with the strokes and the colors of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now we don't have a lot of time, but we're going to briefly meditate upon this wonderful Portrait. And as we do, I want us to see both the depth and the breadth of its glory. First, marvel at its depth. This, there's, a, there's a form of Hebrew parallelism that's going on here. So that steadfast love and faithfulness, they are set up in a way where they are complementing one another. They, they, are, they are synonyms, if you will. Meaning, they're just sort of different ways of saying the same thing. On top of that, the word there that the ESV translates as steadfast love, it is an altogether pregnant Hebrew word. It's the word hased. And it's translated various ways throughout the Old Testament in our English translations, mostly because we do not have a single word or phrase that captures all the beautiful nuances of this glorious Hebrew word. So we may define it as loyalty or kindness or love. It also sort of carries with it the idea of enduring affection or total and complete commitment. And so in an effort to wrap our heads and our hearts and our vocab around this idea, I like to say that God's steadfast love is his ceaseless covenant commitment to his church. It's his ceaseless covenant commitment to his church. That's the depth. This is not a superficial love. 
What the scriptures reveal to us is that this is a love that is as high as the clouds and as deep as the oceans. This love, this steadfast love, this faithfulness, it is immense and overwhelming and bottomless. That's its depth. Marvel as well at its breadth. What does verse 5 reveal? Well, it endures forever. It extends to all generations, which means this is not some fair weather, here today, gone tomorrow love. I don't want to be disrespectful, but this is not the crush of a teenager, right? This is a love and faithfulness that isn't moved or shaken or diminished, not by your sin, not by your performance, and not even by your feelings, The reason this is so important, church, is because the reason that this love has no ending is because it had no beginning. No matter how long you hold your finger on that fast-forward button, God's steadfast love and faithfulness, it will forever carry on. And no matter how how long you hold down that rewind button, God's steadfast love and faithfulness is always there. You don't ever have to worry about yesterday or tomorrow. God is committed to you. Again, this is what God's steadfast, this is what his has said means. It's a ceaseless covenant commitment to care for his church. And so to come full circle, this is why we praise This is why God is worthy of our praise. This is why if you do not lift up your voices this morning and praise God, then the rocks will do so. Because God is good. God is good. Not good like chocolate, but infinitely good. And that is because the Father has, through the Son and by His Spirit, He has chosen in His grace to envelop us in His steadfast love and faithfulness. He has so showered us with Christ and with his gospel that you and I are soaking wet from head to toe in the love and mercy and grace of God. So the only thing that we can do in response is praise our great God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our great God and Father, you are great, and we are a guilty people for so cavalieringly referring to you as just good or great or our Father. God, forgive us. Forgive us for breaking the third commandment and taking your name in vain. We pray that your Spirit would work the truths of your word of Psalm 100 into our souls this day and this week so that we would be a people who see that you are worthy of praise and that we would find that our praise would not be some duty that is assigned to us, but that it would be the utter delight of our hearts. We ask that you would do this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.